to be a good sommelier, you need to be approachable, you need to be compassionate and you need to be a nice person. Um, to be a successful sommelier, at the end of the day, all you have to do is um, offer people good drinks that they enjoy and souvenirs that they can take home and talk to their friends and families about. That's a successful sommelier. Winning awards is nice and it's great accolade for the hard work that's involved in uh, maintaining and writing wine lists, but if you've not got customers that are going away happy, then you've not really done your job properly. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. One of the key features of the last year in the hospitality sector is seeing how venues adapt, evolve and change shape to suit the situation, ensure viability and also a point of difference. But this is not uncommon to hospitality and over the years we've seen many operators chance their arm on new ideas, even those that have been in the industry for decades. Jake Atkinson is a sommelier of Mojo's Kitchen Bar and Bottle Shop in Western Australia. Jake, how are you going? Good, thanks. Huck, yourself? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Mojo's has been around for a couple of decades, but one of the really interesting things is you don't see many restaurants and bars that are also a bottle shop. Tell us about the decision to add that to the business a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a unique situation. Um, like most sort of uh, restaurants, we were always opera- operating under just a standard restaurant liquor license. So we didn't ever really have the ability to retail um, booze per se. So um, we did a bit of research and had a look at what we could actually do to expand that repertoire because we've always had quite a strong focus on our um, liquor, liquor offerings, um, predominantly wine in the early days and more so now we've added uh, the craft beer uh, side of things. But, um, yeah, we, we did some research and discovered that a tavern licence with uh, an under, sorry an unrestricted tavern licence would give us the ability to... Um, essentially add a retail component to our um, our venue, which um, sort of uh, was a model that I'd seen years ago that I fell in love with um, when I was uh, a youngster doing my um, wine studies uh, over in Melbourne, uh, places like um, the City Wine Store and St Jude's Cellars and places like that, um, you know, really kind of captivated my attention. So, yeah, it's something I sort of wanted to replicate um, with our own brand of hospitality. It's a family-owned restaurant, and I'd love to take a deep dive into the history of that. But uh, what sort of impact did adding that to the to the offering have? Um, so, whilst it, it's something that we'd sort of been spitballing and um, trying to sort of uh, get off the ground lightly for the last almost decade, and then. Um, end of 2017 we actually gave it a proper proper crack and uh, invested the right amount of energy into you know making it a reality um so uh, through um through everything that's happened in the uh whole covid year that we've just uh been through we kind of uh were a bit like a cat we landed on our feet uh through having this um little retail outlet um 
essentially it gave us the ability to have an extra revenue stream uh, whilst we we did do the uh, whole takeaway food model we had the ability to um, continue um, retailing liquor uh, which was considered an essential service um, so um, whilst most places were having customers visit their uh, venues through like a, either a, like a take takeout window almost drive through scenario we were still having limited guests actually come into our venue um, as well which was you know really quite different in terms of um, uh, a hospitality venue the the restaurant has been around for a couple of decades and it's a family-owned restaurant but you weren't always going to be um, part of the restaurant you you were studying something else so tell us about um, what you'd planned to do and then what drew you back into the fold yeah, for me, it was a bit of an interesting uh, uh, story. Uh, as a young bloke, I, I was only ever really concerned about going skateboarding, fishing, hanging out with my mates, going to the pub. Um, when I left school, I was um, I was not a bad student, but I was never um, the most, uh, I guess, motivated with studies. So um, I had the opportunity to go on to university. I didn't ever actually take that and um, sort of uh, took a little bit of time to uh, formulate myself and uh, come up with a plan. And I did a TAFE course as a laboratory technician because um, I had a bit of an interest in science. Um, and all the, all the while I was working part-time at the family business in the, in the kitchen and doing light front of house duties, which I didn't really enjoy uh, at the time. And... Um, I took the first job that was sort of relating to those um, laboratory studies, which was actually a lab tech uh, position at Willowbridge Estate in the Ferguson Valley. So I was uh, essentially helping out the winemaker, uh, aspirating sulfurs and um, doing chemical additions and um, a lot of sampling in the vineyards, which sort of really opened my eyes to the world of wine. Take us back to that time. What sort of impact did it have on you? Um, well... Really, it, it, it lit the fire under me and it, it, and it opened my eyes to the world of wine. Um, at that time, um, really, you know, I'd seen a bit of wine in the family restaurant. Um, I didn't drink wine. Um, I barely drank beer. I, I, was, I was 18, 19 years old. I was still, still very young and very green. And um, for me, having that hands-on um, experience with you know the vinification of grape to vine uh, grape to wine i um really came to appreciate the process and the um the fact that you know it takes an entire um set of um seasons to you know produce a grape that will ultimately turn into wine so i i fell in love with the um the process and the um the, the notion of wine uh, and then in turn the curiosity was there to see, you know, what wine actually tasted like and uh, I started to immerse myself in tasting and trying any wine, good, bad or indifferent. Um, so that was sort of the um, turning point for me that, you know, wine wasn't just sort of a grape vinegar in a bottle that old people drank. It was actually, you know... Uh, it was telling the story of, uh, of a season. So um, for me, I, I, I got that early kind of um, jump on what wine truly 
is as a an agricultural um, item uh, in and not just a, a a drink for old people. Most people don't grow up wanting to be a sommelier, but you're one of WA's best. When when, when was the moments that you realised that that was a, that was a career for you? Well, that was all circumstantial as well. I mean, I had this um, kind of uh, wine epiphany uh, at an early age, but becoming a sommelier wasn't really, um, you know, what I wanted to do or I didn't even know what it was. I couldn't pronounce the word um, (laughs) at that time. So um, it was, again, through circumstance um, that I actually got drawn back into the family business my my stepfather, bless him, he's one of the hardest working people I know, and I think that's where I got my work ethic from. Um, he he he's over the last twenty years worked two and three jobs um, as a media personality as well. Um, he's a he's the local um, statewide news anchor, um, and he also was doing some um, radio announcing. So. In a in two thousand six, when the um, state elections came up, he's always had a real passion for politics. So he took some long service leave and stepped aside from um, his duties at the restaurant, which left a big void for restaurant management. And he ran as an independent candidate for our local seat. Um, so I sort of, you know, thought, well, I'm a big boy now. I'm I'm twenty twenty one. I I should be able to run the restaurant. So I, I jumped into the boots and uh, sort of the rest was history. I, you know, had a bit of an interest in wine and and alcohol in general by that stage after doing that early vintage at Willow Bridge Estate. And then I think it was my mother that showed me an article in Gourmet Traveller. Um, it was either Gourmet Traveller or Gourmet Traveller Wine about these people um, the the court of master sommeliers and she said look you could you can study wine um i thought oh yeah sounds pretty good um so fast forward a couple of years i actually you know enrolled myself got the text and spent a couple of years going through the um court of master sommeliers program flying over to melbourne and um you know doing doing the studies and tastings and going through that uh, quite daunting process really you mentioned that you're, you jumped in at the age of 21 to run the restaurant. What, what were the challenges involved uh, for you? Did you make any mistakes in those early days? Of course I did, but, you know, I was 21, so I didn't think so. And <laughs> I was running my parents' restaurant, so, you know, it was my way or no way. And sometimes it can be that way to a, to a degree. But, um, look, you know, a big part of... Um, you know, prepare, preparing for coming on this um, on this podcast, I, I sort of have been re- reflecting on my career, and and it's it's been quite a journey of um, of maturity. You know, in the early days, um, I was you know bitten by the uh, French wine bug early um, after doing some stagiaire vintages with. Um, the panel family down at Piketty Wines in Pemberton and I was very fortunate to drink some very high-end uh, Burgundy wines and uh, fall in, uh, fell in love with uh, French um, through conversations and tastings with um, the panel family uh, of Burgundy wine. So, of course, any free time and spare money I had was spent um, browsing through Langton's wine auctions trying to acquire Grand Cru Burgundy's first-growth Bordeaux's and 
essentially have no money for anything else, but I, I had a pretty good wine, wine cellar. Um, but, you know, for me, looking back now, as much as I love those wines, they're special to me and they're special at any opportunity you get to look at them. They're not what uh, is a realistic um, kind of uh, reality in uh, everyday wine for me here at Mojo's in, in Bunbury, WA. Um, whilst they're special, they're not what actually, you know, uh, gets me excited um, because they're just not an achievable um, everyday uh, solution to you know drinking wine or offering wine to my patrons so I mean from the early days my wine list was up to about eight nine hundred references I think we consecutively got three glass wine ratings in the gourmet traveler wine list of the year magazine which was amazing and I have a massive appreciation and um, I'm very grateful to the fact that my parents would pay the bills of my wine addiction, um, which sort of allowed us to achieve such a, an amazing uh, collection of wine references. But, you know, um, the market was very different back then. Um, this was sort of 2009, 10, 11. There was that sort of uh, bit of that, the wake of that mining boom, there was money to being spent. People were happy to spend three zeros on uh, bottles of wine and, we we were positioned in the right spot to be able to uh, offer offer the those that wanted it those offerings. So, I mean, whilst it was a different time then, you know, looking at it now, we just don't even consider offering wine in that sort of um, highbrow um, way anymore. So yeah, I think it's been a maturity, but it's also been an evolution of the the financial climate and the requirements of the people we serve in our restaurant. The WA uh, wine uh, industry has evolved beautifully over this period of time that you've been at Mojo's as well. What do you love about it? I mean, I guess I, 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 I'm super grateful that I, I, I got in on my wine journey as a young fella and I um, sort of kind of have paralleled the infancy of the Geograph wine growing region, our local wine area, uh, with my own journey. I sort of saw um, a lot of vineyards being, um, you know, either early established uh, and in their infancy and the quality of wines being sort of somewhat mediocre. You know, fast forward 15 odd years to now where there's a decent amount of vine age brands have developed beautifully and the uh, quality of wines have been fantastic and I've seen that across the board with um, a few different growing regions having you know getting the better part of 20 years of um, sort of local vintage knowledge under my belt it's it, it's been a real journey seeing the way that you know the uh, caterpillar has evolved into the butterfly. We've spoken to a few uh, sommeliers on Deep in the Weeds, but it's always been about wine, but you've got a real passion for craft beer as well and the, the craft beer scene in Australia has developed incredibly over the last decade. What makes a great craft beer? Uh, well, drinkability first and foremost. I mean, to be a good sommelier, you need to be versed in all attributes of uh, the beverage world, I believe. Um Whilst, I mean, things like sake and cigar service that were part of our 
um, Court of Master Sommelier trainings aren't something that I really delve into. Things like beer have become a really um, major part of the repertoire of our offerings at the restaurant. Um, whilst I'm a wine lover, uh, first and foremost, and have the utmost respect for wine. I'm a I'm a beer drinker too, so it's it's not hard to um, you know have an interest in something that uh, you're invested in, like beer. So I mean, I probably drink more beer in a weekly basis than wine, but I have a different kind of level of respect for beer and wine. Um, I was having a conversation with um, a friend yesterday, saying uh, that you know whilst Brewers can put out all of these incredible different beers in such a short amount of time. The poor old winemakers will spend two decades and only put out 20 different vintages of the same vine, whereas a, a brewer can could essentially put out 2,000 different beers in that period of time if they really, you know, so felt like it. So, um, yes, beers are just so dynamic and so ever-changing, Um it's almost, I liken the uh, craft beer trend to the COVID landscape. Uh, it's, it's, it's a constantly evolving beast. It, it's moving and it's dynamic and you just don't know what to expect and you don't know how it's going to change from one week to another. Tell us a bit about Mojo's, how it all started, what it was like back then, when, uh, particularly when you were running the restaurant and, and how, what, how it's evolved. Yeah, um, Mojo's has seen a lot of different changes um, from when my folks first started the business in 2001 uh, while I was sort of in the last years of high school to now. Um, they they bought the business um, whilst owning a small uh, coffee roastery shop down the road uh, and they uh, the reason they purchased and uh, set up Mojo's was because the little coffee shop was a really successful, fantastic business that had small overheads and small staffing costs. They wanted to go a little bit bigger, better, more fancy, um, have a commercial kitchen, and offer uh, have have some food offerings. So they set up Mojo's uh, essentially as a high end cafe. Um, we're we're a part of a cinema complex, so. Uh, we're right in the centre of town, um, right adjacent to a movie theatre, um, and the business model was sort of set up around um, facilitating the um, cinema goers. So in the early days, I think for the first two, three years, we didn't actually even have a liquor licence at the um, premise. So it was just set up as a bit of a you know modern cafe, polished concrete floors, no artwork, clean edges, clean lines, um, and sort of as the years went by, we kind of continually evolved, changed, redecorated, um, updated our kitchen. I think five years into the uh, life of the business, we actually took over the tenancy next door to us and added a function space, uh, which allowed us to increase the size of our kitchen and cool rooms and um, sort of had quite a big overhaul um, and then the, the, when I got my hands on the uh, wine list um, and really sort of expanded the um, alcohol offerings, we, um, we became a lot more of a serious uh, restaurant um, and we 
really invested a lot more interest and time into finding the right chefs and offering the um, uh, more highbrow seasonal kind of uh, food offerings and um, sort of went from, you know, uh, plain tables to white tablecloths, setting full glasses, full sets of cutlery um, to almost a, a slightly... Uh, you know, improvised version of fine dining, essentially, um, uh, all the way to full circle now where we're back to raw raw tables with minimal settings and now we have a very much uh, a, a casual um, hospitality offering. We're still trying to uh, achieve the same level of good service we've always had, uh, but in a more casual setting with the um, bottle shop as a big feature in uh, our everyday life. You've uh, won awards such as Best Australian Restaurant Beer List, Best Regional Listing of Wines. Tell us what it takes to put together these sort of uh, menus and your consideration. Uh, probably first and foremost, understanding parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, you know, have full uh, faith in the fact that I'm not just uh, pissing their money away per se, but... Um, no, they've been really supportive and um, have always hampered um, my um, my addiction to finding the next best, uh, most exciting, most interesting offerings, whether it's beer, wine, spirits alike. Um, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's always moving. But for me, I think curiosity has been the biggest part of that and wanting to explore, I, I guess, Working in the wineries at an early age was amazing and formative um, for sort of getting that interest. But if I had to sort of stay in that environment, I think I would have become bored very quickly. So it's always that curiosity that's uh, led me to, you know, want to write a compelling list, um, looking for themes, looking for um, sort of um, different uh examples um of great varietals beer styles you've you've worked really hard um and been very active trying to connect local producers um to your clientele through what you do um tell us about your in-house program that that concentrates on that yeah so when we um set up the bottle shop a big part of what i wanted to do was um put the geograph wine growing region into the limelight um so when when we had actually been approved our licence, I, I spent a bit of time um, writing and emailing out to all of the um, local wine producers in the Geograph region um, a little bit about, you know, what we intended to do and how we were wanting to, you know, be a partner to the actual whole region, not just individual um individual producers. So uh, essentially what my thoughts were or what my, what my concept was, was we wanted to be a bit of a cellar door in the city for the Geograph wine growers. Where Bunbury is, it's pretty well smack bang in the centre of the upper and lower Geograph uh, wine growing regions. You've got Harvey pretty well to the northern extreme, all the way down to Capel, Bustleton Jetty um, and those surrounds uh, in the southern extreme. Bunbury's more or less equal distance from north to south um, in the middle. So um, there was no one really uh, offering a 
a comprehensive um, selection of Geograph wines. And there's a lot of producers that through their location or their setup don't actually have a platform to showcase their wines, whether they have a cellar door or not. You know, we wanted to, you know, pull all those wines or uh, examples of those wines into uh, one central location. So we set up the bottle shop with uh, a massive um, showcase on Geograph. So, and that's still uh, a big part of what we're doing now. It's probably our main feature in the wine uh, section is our Geograph um, growers. Every second week, we would have uh, a local producer come in and use our space as a pop-up cellar door where they could showcase whichever their wine, uh, wines they wanted. And we would on, then on sell them either for in-house consumption or takeaway at their cellar door prices just to sort of, you know, offer a little bit of a, um, a platform for all of our wonderful local growers to, um, you know, showcase uh, to potentially and hopefully new new customers. You've, Mojo's changed a lot over the years and so has your wine offering. Have the events of the last year changed the focus and what you'll be doing moving forward? Uh, absolutely. Um, COVID sort of taught us all some valuable lessons. I mean, some of the best outcomes I've seen of the... Um, whole last 12 months has been the fact that customers seem to have a lot more respect for the hospitality industry. There's a little bit more compassion there. Um, and also, um, I think the biggest part of what I've sort of been um, surprised by is the fact that, you know, people are acknowledging where their money's being spent and what what that knock-on effect is. So, I mean, us, like a lot of um, the hospitality industry in WA, have had um, issues finding skilled staff and staff in general. So we've had to pare back certain bits and pieces. And we've also, you know, done a lot of reflecting and, um, you know, working out what's really actually important in operating a daily uh, restaurant and you know, we definitely have simplified our offerings um, and I think for the better, you know, cutting out some of those um, loose ends um, that are not super necessary uh, whilst, you know, they might be some of the pretty fancy nice things. Um, they're, they're just really, you know, always under underappreciated. So um, streamlining certain procedures and things, um uh, ha hasn't actually been a bad thing and, you know, helps us to, you know, focus more on what the uh, key fundamentals of our business are. You mentioned that uh, a key feature of your career has been um, maturing along as you go and um, working things out and uh, understanding things better and making better decisions. What sort of advice do you have for for those in the industry that want to go down your path and, and uh, become a sommelier? Look, I don't think I've ever met a sommelier that started out their career intending to become a sommelier. It's sort of one of those things that finds the individual. Um, maybe it's because I'm in Western Australia and it's not really, you know, a massive profession. Um, you know, say you're in Paris, London, New York. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see career psalms being something that you know maybe young younger people aspire to but you know the fact that you're not allowed to legally drink alcohol until you've well and truly left school 
um, means that, you know, your teachers and your peers aren't going to encourage you to become, um, you know, a professional in a liquor industry. So it's something that I think happens a little later on generally. Um, but look, I mean, I've seen, I, I've been fortunate to um, actually work with, um, uh, for a big part of my career, a uh, French guy that um, was running three Michelin star wine list and is very talented, sommelier with a great palate. So he's um, he was acted as a great mentor for me at a young age. But also, uh, I've had some other people like the panel family from Picardy um, really sort of hamper my wine interest and my parents. Um, so that they, um, so that I could, you know, grow a little bit, you know, advice-wise for anyone young wanting to get into it, um, absolutely, just go for it. Find yourself the best, um, best wine-related or booze-related um, setting you can get a job in. Do whatever you can and keep an open mind and be a sponge for knowledge. I mean, really, the best sommeliers are the ones that have always got an open mind and open ears. Uh, they're the ones that are going to continually evolve, learn, and um, be able to uh, translate the stories of the vines and the bottles um, to their customers. And, you know, a successful sommelier is someone that should be compassionate and be able to be approachable and, uh, I guess, in from what I learned and, and from the way I sort of started to where I am now, you know, we did the whole suit and tie thing back in the day with our white tablecloths and, you know, I, th I thought I was um, red hot and, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. But um, reality is fact. I'm sure there was 100,000 other sommeliers out there with probably better palate and better wine knowledge than I had. But um, what I sort of did, um, as an evolution and my growth, I, I, I grounded myself and got grounded and got schooled and um, learnt that, you know, to be a good sommelier, you need to be approachable, you need to be compassionate and you need to be a nice person. Um, you know, uh, to be a successful sommelier, at the end of the day, all you have to do is um, offer people good drinks that they enjoy and souvenirs that they can take home and talk to their friends and families about that's a successful sommelier winning awards is nice and it's great accolade for the hard work that's involved in uh, maintaining and writing wine lists but if you've not got customers that are going away happy then you've not really done your job properly well that's amazing advice and it's amazing to have you on deep in the weeds jake um please keep in touch and uh we'll talk again soon Absolutely. Thank you so much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.